0: to Just Cause with Derek A. Bardwell highlighting the work of people who are tackling some of the most important social issues of our times in each episode you will hear from those who are challenging society's prevailing culture of competition over collaboration, individualism over the community, acquisition over mission, preservation over progression, factors that systematically quietens people with valid alternatives to the status quo You will hear the views, approaches, tactics and inventions of those people who are reimagining our public services, speaking truth to power, providing real hope and opening the doors for the marginalised to move to the centre. Just Cause will feature those with bold visions, those who build their strategies through the lens of the people and communities who suffer the most under our current systems, those with alternatives that, to paraphrase Angela Davis, address racism, male dominance, homophobia, class bias and other structures of domination. In short, we will talk to those who are setting the standards that should be met. On this podcast, we are welcoming Mandu Reid, the leader of the Women's Equality Party and founder of The Cup Effect. Welcome, Mandu.
1: Thank you for having me. Nice I, to see you, Derek.
0: I'm really happy to have you on this podcast. Um, welcome. Um, I'm going to launch into this. I've known you for a few years um, and understand that you had uh, joined the Women's Equality Party in 2018. And then suddenly in 2019, you became its leader, Um Explain the sequence of events that led to you um, rising so swiftly to the top of leadership for the party.
1: Well, let's go back a little. Um, When the party was founded four years ago, I heard about it and I thought that sounded like a great idea. Um, But I had felt really detached and disinterested in party politics due to a previous experience I'd had. I used to be a member of the Labour Party and I just didn't um, have uh, a positive enough you know, journey um at that time, which and I ended up leaving the party and vowed never again to join a political party. The women's equality Party, I thought sounded great, um but I had no interest in being a member. Mm-hmm. I got involved. I live in Lewisham. I got involved and kind of sniffed around the local activity that the party was taking part in. but despite their um, quite persistent attempts to get me to join as 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 a member, I resisted that. Um, and then, Something did shift. I have to admit, I um, unpicked and discovered a little bit more about what the party actually stood for and what the party was trying to achieve. And it was at that moment that I realized, hang on a minute, this isn't just something that I should be interested in, this is something that I should put my energy into. And so I did join up as a member. I did stand um, as a candidate in the local elections last year. I did stand as a parliamentary candidate in a by-election and um, in the... In Lewisham. In Lewisham East. Yeah, that's right. That was a really interesting experience, um, (laughs) I have to say. Um, And then at our party conference last year, I stood to be elected as spokesperson for equal parenting and caregiving which is a strange thing for me to have done because I'm not a parent and we can come to that in a minute. But anyway, I stood, I was elected as spokesperson by a landslide and so became involved in the party uh, quite heavily. When you're a spokesperson for the Women's Equality Party, you're on what's called our policy committee, which is the equivalent of a shadow cabinet. So I became part of the leadership um, back end of last year. And then, surprise to everyone, beginning of this year, our leader, Sophie Walker, stood down. And then a search began for um, somebody to step in and replace her. And I was one of the people that got approached. I got canvassed by lots of party members. That took me even more by surprise than Sophie standing down, I have to say. And um, eventually I was um, interviewed by our national executive, um, and they decided I was the right person to step into the fold. And so here I am. I definitely didn't expect that. I've been in post since 12th of April this year. Yeah.
0: Why did Sophie stand down, particularly so soon uh, after the party had started?
1: I mean, I'm not 100% sure of the ins and outs um, uh, of her decision making. But um, when she stood down, one of the things she said was that um, she felt that what was needed more than anything else um, in a party like ours in British politics was people knowing when... um, you know, stepping aside and allowing space for voices that aren't properly represented, don't get the airtime, stepping aside for those voices. She felt that that was the act of leadership she wanted to perform. And she felt she could best serve our movement by making space. She was really um, self-aware of perhaps some of her own limitations with regard to being able to represent some of those who probably need the Women's Equality Party more than anyone else. And it's a really rare thing in politics for somebody in that kind of leadership position to um, perform leadership by making space and giving way. And um, that's, that, was her, that was the reason she gave for deciding that actually, right here, right now, the most profound contribution she can make to our movement is to make room.
0: Thinking back to when you were a member of the Labour Party. Yes. What was it being a member then yeah. that made you perhaps a bit disillusioned, uh, making you feel perhaps that you didn't want to get into, get into politics? What What were those experiences like? And how would you like to change things now in terms of now being the leader of the women's so presidency. I
1: joined I joined Labour formally as a member I've always been a Labour voter okay. um, uh, but I joined formally as a member in 2010 and I joined because I was traumatised at what I knew was going to happen once okay. uh, the coalition government had got a grip on this country and I thought I I can't just be a voter I need to um, Do something. I need to be proactive. I need to be part of the movement that's going to resist this. And so I joined and got involved in my local area. And um, I think it's different now, I have to say, in my local area. But at the time, what I found was that there was a real detachment um, amongst the people who were heavily involved in the party. And Lewisham is about as red as it gets, you know, the entire council um, now is labor. We have a labor mayor, all of that stuff. And I found a real detachment uh, f- between those people who made up the the heart of labor party activists in that area and some of the people who are at the sharp end. Lewisham is a low income area and a lot of the people at that time, who were most active in the Labour Party, were very middle class, very homogenous, very detached from the people who their mission was supposed to serve. And I just remember feeling frustrated about that. The other thing was, um, I I was impatient. And I was um, frustrated at having to always compromise some of the things I truly believe in for all sorts of other agendas. You know, Gender equality is something that I think um, is a really important battle that needs to be fought. There's a lot of work to be done. But I found in, within the parameters of, of that party at that time, It was always kind of relegated to second or third order priority or a footnote. And now, as leader of the Women's Equality Party, I can campaign with abandon for (laughs) the things I believe in, for the things I'm passionate about. No one's telling me, oh, you've spoken too long now about um, equal parenting and caregiving. I don't have to negotiate whether it's okay for us to raise issues that I think would make a difference.
0: Equal parenting and, and caregiving. Yeah. You, you campaigned on that um, before you became leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's that's one of your big party manifestos. Uh, speak a bit more about why this was so much at the forefront for you hmm. now and uh, continues to be at the forefront of your um, uh, strategy. Going there are forward. a
1: few things and I'm going to talk about it from a very personal point of view and I'll yep. talk about it more on a, in a more macro way as well. Personally, because I've already mentioned um, when I learnt more about what the party stands for, that was the thing that shifted the dial for me and caused me to join up. And it was the equal parenting and caregiving policies that our party um, espouses. And those are very simply proper shared parental leave. Proper. So, um, an equal allocation between men and women. We say nine months, three of which has to be taken by the man, the other three has to be taken by the woman or the other partner if it's a same-sex relationship, and the other three can be distributed how the, 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 the pair choose, thing number one. Thing number two, universal childcare from the end of parental leave up to age five. Fully costed, by the way, pays for itself, because you can have more women in the workforce who are paying taxes, who are not claiming benefits, so it pays for itself, beautiful. Now, When I was 33, I got pregnant and I got pregnant by accident. And I wasn't in a a proper solid relationship with the man. He was younger than me, actually, as it happens. And when it came to us having conversations about what we were going to do, it's bizarre. But neither of us could imagine a scenario where I wasn't going to be the sole or main caregiver of that child, even though the excuses that are normally given for why it is the woman who ends up doing that. Um, are often to do with, you know, she's a bit younger, her career isn't as advanced. So it's okay for her to take some time out now. Um, he gets paid more. So there you are. I got paid more than this guy. I had a way more promising career and immediate pros- prospects than he did. Yet neither of us can imagine a situation where, okay, I have the baby, maybe breastfeed it for a while. And then he does the bulk of the caring and I am doing the, the other role. Couldn't imagine it. And so I had an abortion. At age 33, that's a big deal. I mean, uh, because, you know, women, biological clock ticking, all that stuff. It was a dilemma, but that was the choice I made. And when I discovered the Women's Equality Party policies, I realized if those policies were the real deal, I could have made a different choice. And I'm certain that that applies to millions and millions and millions of women across the sort of developed world. And for me, that really struck home, really struck a chord. And I want to just say that, of course, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women who are single mothers who were doing it. And I'm in awe of those women. But I didn't feel that I could do it and honor the plans I had for my own kind of career trajectory and the contribution I wanted to make to society. I didn't feel I could be a single mother, which was what would have had to happen. I told you I wasn't solid with this guy and and, and follow through. Our policies would have made the decision-making completely different. So that is where my kind of passion for that particular area stems from. Just very briefly, on a macro level, I think if you sort that out a lot of the other stuff that um, causes inequality between men and women starts to fade away. I think that if there's one single intervention... if Do you think
0: this is the the single biggest issue? It wouldn't happen... Yes. (laughs) uh,
1: It wouldn't happen overnight. It's not as if we put these policies in place and then suddenly, hallelujah, the angels are singing and men and women are equal. But I think over generations what you'd see is... um, representation of women at senior levels starting to balance out, whether that's in politics or business or the public sector, wherever else. You would see just the status men and women have normalizing and balancing out in society. Um, And I think what would also be great is that men could fulfill their potential in ways that the current system prevents them from doing. You know, at the moment, you don't get a round of applause necessarily. There's a lot of stigma for, for, for men who want to be more active and involved in their families. Um, this would change so many of those norms that a lot of the stuff that we're campaigning on would start to naturally flow, you know, into the destination that we're, we're looking to take, take this country and take our culture and take society.
0: You mentioned an important word, culture. Yeah. So... Looking at this from a policy level, sure. I can hear what you're saying. On a cultural level,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what does that look like practically, given the culture of this country?
1: I think it's there's a few things. And it won't surprise you that Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries, are the ones who have the best template for this stuff. And what we've seen there is um, younger men. And when I say younger, I'm 38, so definitely younger than me. I'd say <laughs> 30 and under. Um, the culture in workplaces and even blue-collar type workplaces is changed drastically because men don't have to get permission, and I'm talking about social permission from their peers mm-hmm. to do this stuff, um, to 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 be more involved. It's seen as much more of a norm. You know, I'm not saying um, hey, the gender equality problem is completely eliminated in 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 those countries, but I think when you have policies that give Men permission to do things that they're prevented from doing because of how they've been socialized, because of what the stigmas are, because of um, what uh, is expected of them given the templates of masculinity that we've all been taught, and frankly, templates of, mas- of femininity too. When you start to put things in place that allow different examples of how to be a man to, 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 to prevail, your son. Um, is I don't know how old your kids are, or even if you have any, but um, they would be observing so many different examples of men fulfilling uh, different roles and functions in society and women at the same time. And so they'll be growing up with a different template in their head. I mean, you and I, those templates are set and, and, and we, we try to navigate them every
0: day. Absolutely. Yeah. Speak about, you know, you were talking about the prevailing culture that we have at this particular time and really envision, uh, you know, having a vision for the future that's very different to the one that we have now. And and education is fundamental in that. Um, Where do you stand in terms of this particular issue, but in terms of how that translates to the education system and how young people are raised? Because a lot of these norms are cemented from a very young age.
1: And which issue, though, are you talking about specifically? So
0: I'm talking about parental um, Ah. care, and I'm talking about masculinity Mm -hmm. and manhood and Mm -hmm. how that plays out you know from very early age on the playground in terms of what a young boy should be and what a girl should be how do you feel that the women's equality party would tackle this from an educational standpoint and again looking at culture and changing some of those cultural norms
1: yeah i mean i think like i say and this is why i started with how important i think the whole equal parenting and caregiving agenda is because You can't flick a switch that suddenly changes the way everybody sees the world. But what you do, what you have to do is um, amend the the, the structures that force people into certain pathways or certain destinies. And um, people talk a lot about um, toxic masculinity. I think it has a counterpart, toxic femininity as well explain so for me i think toxic masculinity and toxic femininity are the spawn of this thing called patriarchy which is a system that hurts all of us there are very very few i think most men are also damaged by this system called patriarchy um as we know women are but i think most men are also um damaged by it and so i think when you start to make changes to society, like the one I've described around changing what's normal and what's possible with respect to parenting and caregiving. 80% of people become parents, so it's a big critical mass, and it's a big rite of passage, and it's so identity defining, um, that if you make changes and change what's normal, what's possible, what's economically viable, what's celebrated, what you do is you start to undermine the uh, building blocks of patriarchy, and what you do there, what happens then is you dissolve so many of the things that are negative about toxic masculinity be macho be a tough guy don't show your feelings um, abuse your power and toxic femininity which sometimes demands those things off men you know so I think those two things you have to uh, put in place uh, stuff that filters through the generations and you sorry I didn't really touch on the education side of things I think education is 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 a tool rather than something that um, on its own can uh, change the way society is organized. And one of our policies is around, uh, you know, equal education, too.
0: You've spoken about some of the policies or a couple of the policies that you're campaigning on. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other Policies, or what some of the other things that you would say the Women's Equality Party stands for? For those that don't know about sure. you guys, what would you say are some of those key things?
1: Ending violence against women and girls. We've discussed equal parenting and caregiving. Equal representation. Mm-hmm. Women have such an important role to play in all walks of life. And in a lot of walks of life where status is cemented, um, we are uh, woefully absent So uh, sorting that out is one of the things that we're really, really determined to campaign on. Um, Equal health care. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but um, a lot of medicines are only tested on the male body, male mice, for example. What on earth is that? How on earth have we allowed that to happen? And you know the excuse that's given? The excuse that's given is, oh, women have these complicated um, sort of hormonal and reproductive system that will mess with the medicines. Well, fine, but if you're going to give those medicines to women, you've got to test them on, wi- on women. And, 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 you know, they only use male mice in the labs. It's crazy. Um, what else have we got? Uh, equal education, um, equal media. The way men and women are represented, are treated in the media uh, per- helps to perpetuate some of the stuff I've described as being problematic and cementing the sort of attitudes that uh, you know, do us all a disservice. And so, yeah, those are, those are really the headlines, but right now we're doing a lot of campaigning on ending violence against women and girls. That's the focal point of the stuff we're um, putting our energy into for the time being because it's neglected by the other parties. By the other parties.
0: Yeah. How do you then, you know, adopt a lens
1: mm-hmm.
0: to this work? That and, and I remember going back when the Women's Equality Party started and being excited about it, but, but also feeling that it was this kind of exclusive white middle-class club that would exclude women of colour, people of colour and different and other marginalised communities potentially. Um, How do you then also mobilise a party around taking a different lens, a more intersectional lens around some of these issues like violence against women and other things that might be perhaps different to how it was when the party started at the beginning, or maybe it was different when the party began?
1: So um, I think a lot of the perceptions about the Women's Equality Party are to do with the optics. And what I mean by that is what was most visible uh, when the party came into being. And it was founded by Sandy Toxvig and Catherine Mayer. Everyone knows who Sandy Toxvig is, I think. Catherine Mayer is a journalist. Two white middle-class women. The first leader, Sophie Walker, was a white middle-class woman. So those three were, in the very early stages, the most visible figureheads of the party. What I like to make sure people understand is that Actually, um, it's an oversimplification to say that what we do is only really geared at or takes account of the experience of white middle class women. If you look through at all the candidates we've ever stood for election, we're standing candidates in the London Assembly um, elections next year, May next year. We've stood in um, general elections. We've stood in local elections. We have the most diverse candidate list of any of the other parties. We've got women of different ages, different sexualities, different walks of life than any of the other parties, disabled women represented. It's something that we do way better because we're deliberate and purposeful about it than any of the other parties. Not very good on male representation on our lists, um, but I think maybe the time will come for that when you know, women and men are more equally represented in, in in politics, but that's that's the only real blind spot. Where are the guys? Um.
0: I, I, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, where are the guys? Yeah. Um, and I and I only ask that because much of what you say sounds really logical, but obviously, people. This is quite a different mindset to yeah. what traditional politics is about. Yeah. What's been some of the challenge that has come back? quite early for the women's equality party particularly from either male members or people men that have challenged uh, your work
1: okay the first thing i want to say is we don't have enough men we estimate our our male membership to be around five percent of our total it's not enough i want men to fight alongside us and i think they have a whole lot to gain from doing so and i think they would enjoy it actually so that's thing number one but thing number two a lot of people say You know what the problem is, Mandu? It's the name. You're called the Women's Equality Party. You need to really rethink that because it's putting men off. And my answer to them is, I don't know. Nobody said to the Black Panthers back in the days of the civil rights movement, call your movement the Panthers, not the Black Panthers, to make it more palatable to a broader church of people. What we have to do at this stage, we're only four years old, is zoom in on what we're trying to do. And the inequality between men and women has women largely at the sharp end. And so at the moment, we need to name that, we need to be clear about it, and we need to get people um, on board with trying to challenge and overturn that. I do worry, though, because I meet a lot of men who uh, are sympathetic to what we're doing, and some of them call themselves feminists. But what that doesn't often translate into is... The same outrage I feel at the fact that two women a week are murdered every, every week in this country, usually by a partner or an ex-partner. I'm really angry about that. I put all my energy into campaigning about it. When we go on marches uh, to kind of protest the closure of women's refuges, I only see women there. I don't know where the men are. And it's a puzzle for me, Derek. And I don't know, one day maybe we can talk about it. Maybe you can help me out. I do want to try and understand how I cultivate and create an environment that invites men in and makes men feel um, not only that there's a place for them in what we're trying to do, but that they're prepared to uh, put their energy and their passion into it and be as fired up as as our, our our female members are it's a puzzle and I haven't cracked it I'm honest I have to be honest about that. it's,
0: it's, it's, it's interesting I was at an event recently we were talking about um, protest in sports and one of my main points was that women for many years have been at the forefront of of, of protest in sport but that protest has either been silenced or swept under the carpet and what's not happened traditionally is men, who have backed women, who have been at the forefront. You've seen women that have backed men, mm. but it's never w- worked on the reverse. And I guess what you're alluding to is that that same rage that men might have about certain issues that's very personal to them, they don't see some of the issues you're campaigning on perhaps as being personal to them. Yeah. What do you feel is that cultural gap that occurs? for the, Is it that socialisation that we have? Is it just we're in this patriarchal society or do you feel that you're getting through to men with the messaging that you have at this, this particular time?
1: I think, it, I am sure it's a combination of factors. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern Africa in the twilight years of apartheid, and we, my father's English, so always had connections to the UK. And in that time, it was a rare thing, that a white person who was um, really committed To dismantling apartheid there are lots of people who would probably say oh it's a terrible awful thing but it was a rare thing somebody that was actively working to dismantle this thing that we all agree is problematic and i suppose the analogy there is maybe it's maybe it feels slightly threatening the idea of um striving for a world that's truly gender equal when you've been on the upside of an inequality Perhaps, and I, I'm not a man, so I'm really speculating here. Perhaps um, it feels, you, perhaps there's a nervousness around, but where will I stand if everything is leveled out? And um, a reluctance to um, concede some privileges and some advantages. And so, what I try and do, and this is why I really like the equal parenting and caregiving stuff, because one of the big bits of campaigning I want to do when we get over all this general election chaos <laughs> is I want to do a dad's campaign. I want to be talking about why this is good for men and why um, if women are happier, if the women in your lives are happier, you're happier, you know, all of this stuff. And I want want to embrace the things that men have to gain from supporting our movement. And actually, I want them to see it as their movement. But um, I just, I think it's that. I think it's probably a little bit of a little bit of fear, and patriarchy does that. It makes men feel inadequate, even though they are uh, more often than not in a position of privilege, authority, and power relative to women. Um, But the system makes them feel like they have to cling on to that, perhaps. And, um, you know, it's going to take a few generations, I think, for this to properly filter through. But the youngsters are... Uh, I, you know, the, the men I meet who are in their twenties are definitely not like the men I was hanging out with when I was in my twenties. There's a, there there are some there is a real shift in attitudes, but how do we harness that? Uh, I need some help with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: do you? These are quite fundamental changes. Do you feel that you can do this within the context of politics today and the, the structures that we have around politics today?
1: Uh, Yes. Otherwise, I really wouldn't be bothering. Um, I actually think we have an opportunity um, now that is a more fertile opportunity than there has been for a long time. I think we're in a situation in Britain anyway, and it applies in other parts of the world where public trust in politics and politicians is at rock bottom for all sorts of reasons. Brexit's really upset people and divided people. Then 10 years ago, there was the expenses scandal for MPs. And then prior to that, there was people feeling like their opinions had been ignored when they protested against the Iraq war. This has been going on a long time. And what we've done is we've come in and we have no baggage we've come in and we're really transparent about what it is we're striving for, why we're striving for it. And our principle, and this is uh, something that is really fundamental to my leadership, I will always prioritize what really matters over what's convenient. And actually, to be honest with you, Derek, I would rather be lying on the beach in Barbados. I would rather be in a, a scenario where it was not necessary for there to be a women's equality party. So A normal political party is, in this country and in this context, um, always trying to perpetuate its existence into eternity. Power is an end in and of itself. I'm much more interested in influence and justice. And when that's done, we can switch off the lights and shut the door. And that's that. So people will never really be suspicious about what our motives are. I'm always clear. What I want is um, I want to play my part in helping to create a world that the generations coming after us actually want to inherit not to not to kind of feather my own nest or to bolster my own status and that's a completely different way of doing things and we've managed um, we're building up to a general election now our campaign so far has managed to get more cut through than any of our campaigns ever it's all about tackling abuse of power we're standing five survivor candidates against five male mps who have unresolved allegations of sexual harassment sexual assault against them because in westminster if, you, if there's an accusation against you like that, it doesn't get taken seriously. Whereas if you were a teacher or a shop assistant or something like that, you'd be investigated and suspended and it'd be sorted out. There's one guy who, uh, uh, 20 months since the claims were made, nothing has happened. You know why? Because the party he belongs to has a vested interest in keeping him in Parliament voting on issues. So he's swanning around Westminster and never being held to account. These, can, these This abuse of power stuff has actually – people have lost patience with it. And so we're a party that's come in. Brexit's the dominant subject. We're campaigning on this, and we've managed to capture the attention of the public because people are tired of uh, having to accept that um, politicians get to act with impunity and uh, this Brexit thing, which is really bewildering to most people – it's not the only thing that's uh, on people's minds. People are worrying about paying their bills or worrying about their quality of life. And we're coming in and we're talking about stuff like that. And, you know, our model is to influence, our model is to use guerrilla tactics. And uh, I think if everything was hanky dory and people were happy and there was harmony between the populace, the population and politicians, it would be much harder for us to uh, get our message across
0: you mentioned brexit oh yeah if you're talking about people being disillusioned with politics
1: yeah
0: brexit is one of the if not the key issue that's made people really uh, disillusioned with politics and i know it goes far deeper than just you know politicians and the response over the last 3 4 years people want to know what the women's equality party's views are on brexit and the current um issues that are around British politics? Because it's been a mess, everyone acknowledges that it's been a mess, mess, regardless of where you stand. What's your views on this?
1: Um, First of all, when it comes to Brexit, everybody's predicting that uh, if we leave, certainly a no deal type situation, but even if we do kind of cobble together some sort of deal, we are heading for an indeterminate period of economic downturn. Uh, you know, any economist worth, its, worth his or her salt will tell you that. What happens when there's a recession or a period of prolonged economic downturn is that women are often at the sharp end of that. In fact, often isn't the right word to use here. They are always at the sharp end of that. Um, and for that reason, our stance is that um, the Brexit in the formulations that we've seen it, is bad for women and we are therefore against it. Yes, people voted what they voted, but they didn't vote from an informed position. Whichever women voted for Brexit didn't have the information at their fingertips, particularly women from lower income sections of our society, to uh, appreciate the extent to which they are going to have to make a hell of a lot of sacrifices that they wouldn't otherwise have made. So we're there to make that argument. On the other hand, related to the way this whole thing's been handled, uh, it links back to something I said a moment ago, abuse of power. And I think that what this current prime minister's done um, and what he's shown he's prepared to do is a prime example of abuse of power. Um, I was talking about abuse of power previously from the point of view of sexual harassment, sexual assault, whatever. I mean, this prime minister doesn't have a squeaky clean record on that front either, let's face it. But the way he's been prepared to abandon convention for the sake of why his own power to feather his own nest uh, is another reason why I think our campaigning is so important because we're challenging that. We're saying it's this sort of these sinister norms are not acceptable. So on the one hand, it's how the process has been conducted. We're against that. We're shining a light on it. We're exposing it. And Brexit, uh, in all the formulations that we've seen, is going to hurt women. And so we can't be neutral on it. And we're not neutral on it.
0: How do you um, communicate that to people in the sense of you have um, a potential issue here where women particularly women um, of low economic status will be at the sharp end of the problems that might emerge as a result of Brexit Mm. against the image of politicians that enables people to vote for those that, as you said, have this sinister abuse of power. But their charisma, their status, their social status the way they're covered in the press overrides what the impact will potentially be for some of those people that will be voting for them how do you communicate that how do you get that message across effectively about what I'm happens? going to
1: be honest with you yep. Derek it's really difficult um one of the challenges we face is a reluctance amongst the main media platforms to give us airtime and uh the comparison I'd, I I always like to make is change uk you know that 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 kind of bubbled up to the surface came out of nowhere you know when you had a few uh, tory and a few labor politicians defecting from their parties and creating this brand new entity those were seasoned politicians who were given an abundance of media coverage and had a huge amount of resources but the thing still flopped and i would say imagine what the women's equality party would have been able to do had we had access to those platforms and that those kind of backing that kind of backing and those kind of resources because our position is a position that uh, whenever people do get to find out about us, more often than not, they're at least curious. Uh, Beyond curious, uh, a significant critical mass of people that engage with us, and it's not enough people that have the chance to engage with us, are captivated and want a part of it. And I wonder if there's a fear, perhaps, of what would happen if we were given the platforms that some of the other parties and mainstream politicians are given. So it is a real challenge. We rely on our grassroots um, network. We got 70 branches up and down the country, 35,000 members and supporters, which is massive for a party that's only four years old. Um, and We put energy into that grassroots bottom up stuff. Change UK, they had none of that. And that's why they fizzled out. That's why someone like Chukomuna was like, you know what, I think he said it himself. He said, I totally underestimated. um, And probably he probably took for granted the extent to which having people in communities who've got your back is an essential part of being able to operate successfully. We never neglected that. We started with the grassroots and the bottom up. And we use that to kind of keep us going. Four years later, starved of media coverage, very limited resources. We operate on a shoestring we're still here, and we're influencing the debate. The domestic violent, domestic abuse bill was debated in Parliament yesterday. That was We've been lobbying behind the scenes to make that happen. We've been lobbying a lot of the big politicos to make that happen, and there we are. No one said, everyone said Brexit will dominate, but that's the only bill that has, has got any airtime given the prorogation of Parliament. So, you know, it's frustrating because we don't always get the credit for the things we're achieving, but... Uh, we 're going to keep going because our mission's too important
0: you're fighting the system where you're talking about the media you're talking about financing and and so many different issues but you're very much illustrating that you're doing this from grassroots up and, mm-hmm. and very much through the, the lens of the people um, how do, do how have you managed that transition <laughs> from you know being a member to now being the forefront? Of the party, because you know, you, you will be there trying to fight for airtime on national platforms, you will be there trying to fight for reform within parliament, you were there trying to do grassroots campaigning, but a year, two years ago, of course, you would have been behind the scenes. How have you managed that? That transition and and that level of exposure that must come and, and responsibility that comes uh, on you personally, um, given your your you know your stature at this particular point.
1: I feel a huge amount of pressure. I um, am daunted by it. I am intimidated by it. But when it comes down to it, I feel so personally invested in this. And I've told you some of my personal backstory. I I believe in this stuff with every sinew of my being. And so for me. It actually feels, even though I'm still finding my feet, even though I um, have to fight harder than perhaps another you know, politician um, who's new to the scene would have to fight within the confines of a major political party, I have to fight harder to get taken seriously, to get listened to. I'm propelled by just total certainty of my sense of purpose and because I don't have to compromise I don't have to go to my national executive and say, is it okay for us to focus our campaigning on violence against women and girls? And they say, no, this time we want to talk about transport or the economy as our primary, uh, uh, you know, campaigning uh, priority. So it in a way, the support I have from our movement and um, the fact that the mission is completely crystal clear is enough. And... Um, I'm learning as I go. I mean, every day is a different challenge. When I've got to do something on the radio um, or on, on, on TV, I do get massive kind of like um, overwhelming adrenaline and cortisol, stress hormones pumping through me. But um, some clever person who uh, works with actors said, that's just your body's way of preparing you to perform at your best. And so even though whew, it's uncomfortable at times, I actually have learned to um, put it in perspective. And the other thing, I made a deal with myself when I was contemplating doing this because I wasn't sure when the call came and they wanted me to do it, whether I, it was the right thing for me right now. I made a deal that I'm not going to wear the fancy dress of a politician. I'm going to look how I look. I'm going to talk how I talk. I'm going to dress how I dress. And I'm going to communicate um, in a way that's authentic to me because i I won't be able to do it well if I don't. I won't enjoy doing it well if I don't. And crucially, I will be setting a bad example. If I try and fit into a template that isn't my template, then I'm actually not helping people see that they could be part of this too.
0: Have you followed anyone? Um, Are there any politicians or people of influence who uh, you've admired in in terms of the way that they have entered the political space or how they carry themselves? I'm not saying mimicking them, but just people that are showing the way forward. for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it won't be a great surprise that I am a huge, huge admirer of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. First of all, she's so young. And I mean, when I was her age, God knows what I was doing. I definitely didn't, you know, uh, have her kind of it took me a lot longer to get to where I am now. So a huge admire of her. And what I love about what she's done and what she, what she did and what she's continuing to do was totally broke the mold. She shouldn't have won in her district, taking on one of the most established Democratic uh, Democrat politicians. But what she did was she did this beautiful thing of, um, she calls it changing who turns out. So she didn't even try and speak to those politicos. She made it about the grassroots and she she... Um, similar to what I've described I'm trying to do she's been true to who she is and I think at the moment it links back to my point about lack of trust in politics and politicians I think people are craving um, the peop- uh, leadership where actually you can, you can believe in and you can trust uh, that the person in front of you isn't trying to perform for you They are showing you who they are. They're showing you what they've got and are leaving it up to you to make a choice about whether that's what you want. Another politician, um, also a woman, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. Um, Again, she's broken the mold. First of all, she was pregnant as the prime minister and just got on with that. Um, Second of all, she does this thing that I, um, you know, want to implement over the medium and longer term, and that is communicates, expresses, makes her point in a way that, sure, has um, intellectual rigor associated with it, and that's in our politics, you know, we do elevate and put on a pedestal IQ, but there's EQ as well. There's emotional intelligence. And she uses that. Remember her response to the massacre in the mosque? Her approach to that totally broke the template of how of strongman politics that's, that's on the rise and on the thrive at the moment. And so for me, people that are prepared to uh, find their own way and connect Um, using authentic means and mechanisms are really, really attractive. Putting the EQ back into politics is something I really want to uh, achieve and and I want people who support the Women's Equality Party to know that's a principle of how we do what we do and totally inspired by Jacinda Ardern on that.
0: What about self-care, um, no. which, which is important because <laughs> yeah. the more popular becu- you become, you, you, you're at this uh, stage where you've got 35,000 members, you're trying to break through at some point that will happen. But what comes with that is additional pressures. How do you manage that transition as you your party becomes more popular? Yeah. If you
1: know it's something that I'm not very good at. <laughs> you know, one of, my, one of my weaknesses has historically been, and I'm trying to work on it now, is, is asking for help and admitting when I'm struggling. It's, it, it's not something that um, has in the past come naturally to me. But since I've acknowledged it in the last couple of years, because last year I did burn out. I, I, I was trying to do too many things, and I ended up for the first time in my life, having to be signed off for two weeks by my GP, because, I mean, it's horrible. I had like cold sores at my nose, Derek. I just ran out of energy, I had fatigue, everything was aching. I couldn't. I couldn't keep going. And it was, it was because I didn't um, know how to say no, how to ask for help, how to admit that I was struggling. And so what I've done now with, with, with my team is I've told them that this is one of my weaknesses, and I've sort of instructed them to uh, call me out when I am taking on too much. And because I've given them that, um, I guess, license, it has really helped change the dynamic. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever get to the point where I'm really, really good at self-care, but I have delegated my self-care to others <laughs> um, I, uh, just because I I, I I don't yet trust in my own instincts around knowing when and how to put the brakes on.
0: As a woman of colour entering politics, what's that, not entering politics, but in such a prominent position, what's that been like
1: for you? Um, well, I, I feel both humbled and privileged to be i mean i'm the first black person to lead a national political party in british history so i am humbled by that i am proud of it but like i said um there are there's there's a kind of underbelly to that too and one of the things that happens a lot is um people assume that i I'm now representing all the black people, all the black women in particular in Britain. And I have to tell people uh, that um, yes, representation is important. You can't be what you can't see. I absolutely understand that. Um, However, you know, black women, black people are not a monolith Um, and why should we be? And so that is often, I often get, you know, very well-meaning, nice kind of middle-class people in the media who ask me about this, and they seem a little bit bemused. And I have to explain to them that actually, um, you know, real freedom is not, uh, you know, real freedom comes with you being able to express who you are in whatever way you choose. And so you may disagree with me on something as a fellow black woman, and that's fine. I saw Angela Davis speak earlier this year at at the South Bank, and she said, yes, there are black people all over the world that I have no kinship with because they have very different views from me about and principles from me. And so that is one of the main challenges, being expected to uh, speak on behalf of um, all the people that share my demographic characteristics. Um, In terms of... Another challenge, I suppose, is just the threat of abuse and um, people kind of doing you down, criticizing you. Um, I My approach to that on social media, because I do get some of that, is to just completely ignore it. I will never engage with... Um, people that want to hurl baseless abuse at me. Um, I'm just not interested in that kind of dialogue and that kind of dynamic. So,
0: Of course, because there's a culture of that. mm. When we look at our uh, female politicians of colour, the level of abuse that they get is, is, you know, disproportionate. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, you know, coming back to the self-care, how do you incubate yourself from from that level of abuse
1: well i mean you can't um if you're in the public eye and in the public eye in 2019 a lot of um the ways you get your message out there are via social media platforms and social media platforms are also places where those who want to throw grenades um feel emboldened to do so so i think um on the one hand, you kind of have to, and this is a terrible, I feel bad that I'm saying this, but it's true. You have to price it in, you know? So I've priced in that people are going to hurl abuse at me. And in the current climate, I don't feel being, you know, pragmatic that I have any other choice. If that's something that was totally if that, that was totally unacceptable to me, then I wouldn't be able, um, in the current formulation of how politics and public life kind of pans out and is conducted I wouldn't be able to do what I do um I there's this other thing of trying to remember and it links to this thing of I don't want to wear the fancy dress of a politician or someone in public eye trying to make sure you're very clear about who you are and what you believe in because I wake up in the morning I'm Mandu someone says something nice about me, I'm still the same person. Someone says something bad about me, I'm still the same person. And I have to tell myself that um, on a pretty much daily basis because that is one one of my, I guess, one of the ways I use the word insulate or incubate myself from um, you know, the barrage of critique and criticism and also it can go the other side if people are also giving you too much praise and it's a bit sycophantic it's good for you to remember who you really are and not get caught up and believe the hype all the time so it goes in both directions just trying to be solid in what you believe in what you care about why you're doing this
0: a few issues yeah um climate change mm. what's your uh stance as a party on climate change to
1: be honest, um we acknowledge that climate change is one of the most um unifying challenges that we all we're all facing. When I say unifying, everybody's gonna lose if we don't address this. So it's one of those areas where there's like uh, a quite a compelling argument for working across party lines or or whatever else. What we're not trying to do is duplicate, though. You know, we're not we're not going to suddenly become experts in climate change, but we're going to support those. Whether it's Extinction Rebellion, whether it's Green Parties, whether it's other um, multilateral movements, we're going to support those that are trying to um, challenge it. What we will make sure, though, we do that others don't always do, is zoom in on the ways in which climate change globally um, is damaging to women. For example, I mean, I I was born in Malawi. That's where my mother's from. Um, In parts of uh, that country away from the lake, um, drought is becoming more and more normal. So and climate change is one of the factors that's been pointed to as a cause of that, which means women who typically carry and fetch the water, women and girls are having to double the distances. They have to walk. In order to provide fresh water for their families, that's something that doesn't always get flushed out. It's that nuance sometimes gets lost in the conversation. So our job is to support those who have the expertise, but make sure that the gender lens on subjects like that are properly thought through, properly considered, brought to the fore.
0: Trans rights. Mm -hmm. What about it? What's your stance on trans rights?
1: Are you talking about the party stance? The
0: party stance, yeah.
1: So um, our founding document states that uh, we recognize that for some people, the binary definitions of man and woman aren't sufficient to um, describe how they see themselves. So that's our starting point. Clearly, it's a fault line in um, feminism. And we recognize that. And our work really, this is another way we do politics a little bit differently. Our work is about trying to create an environment where the nuances and the tensions between people who believe different things or on different sides of the arguments can be explored. A beautiful example is the Irish referendum on abortion was preceded by about two years worth of Um, citizens' assembly meetings where people came together and those who have strong views on either side were frankly forced to listen to one another. And what you don't get is this glorious um, the heavens open and the angels are singing consensus on an issue that's so kind of um, uh, uh, strongly felt on people of opposing sides. But what you do get is more people appreciating where those who believe differently from them are coming from. So we're we're undertaking a process um, right now. It'll probably take about a year or so to run its course amongst our membership where we have a members' assembly set up. It hasn't been set up yet, we're designing it now. And people with opposing views will come together and they will listen to each other, and the nuances of their arguments will get airtime. Rather than what we have now is people on social media in bunkers chucking grenades at each other. It's not productive. It doesn't help anybody. It entrenches and calcifies. Um, their positions
0: so it's about achieving consensus within the party no we um.
1: I don't believe that it's possible to achieve a total harmony and consensus it's about helping people appreciate um, the perspectives the fears the misconceptions of those on the other side of the argument a lot of this is about fear a lot of people have their strongly held views because they're afraid and our job is to create an environment where that fear gets explored
0: wanted to ask about the cup effect oh yeah sure you're still running uh, your non-profit called yeah. the cup effect uh menstrual cup that is an alternative to pads and tampons what does the cup effect do to raise awareness
1: sure um just a lot of people won't really know what a menstrual cup is and i know you've explained okay. it but it's a it's a little silicone device um and as Derek said, it's an alternative to pads or tampons. The remarkable thing about them though is that they're reusable and each one lasts for 10 years. I mean, I've, I've used mine for the last nine and a half years. So I know for sure that they work and they do their thing. The beauty there is if you're from a low-income background and my mother is, is, is from that background. She wasn't, she's a middle-class person now, but she wasn't in her childhood and in her youth. And so for her, when she started menstruating, it was a real challenge to kind of operate and go about her business in a dignified way, a menstrual cup, which lasts for 10 years, would have completely transformed her experience as an adolescent. And that's where the idea came from. So what we do is we run um, workshops and sessions in low-income communities in the UK, in Kenya, in Malawi, where we take people from cup clueless, which is most people in the world, frankly, to cup curious, to cup confident, to cup committed. And we involve men in those conversations, too, so they can understand what's happening with their wives and their daughters and their girlfriends and their sisters. Um, and now our work has elevated to this more kind of strategic advocacy where we're trying to get um, organizations uh, like Oxfam, for example. Oxfam works with this enormous quantity of people, 90 million people every year around the world. So our work now is lobbying organizations like that that are already investing billions over, uh, say, a 10-year period in keeping girls in school and demonstrating them to them that addressing menstrual health... Giving girls and boys and men and women menstrual literacy as well as the option to use a menstrual cup because it's about the most cost-effective, environmentally friendly, comfortable solution that nobody's ever heard of um, would be transformative with respect to the things they're trying to achieve but also their bottom line. Money talks, you know. If you think about it, a menstrual cup costs about… Uh, maximum to manufacture. It lasts for a decade. So for 20 cents every year, you know, you can actually give um, a girl or a woman freedom from something that's just a natural part of her life but would otherwise hold her back.
0: What's the efficacy of menstrual cup? No, Financially, great. Usability, Mm. environmentally, yes. But in terms of well-being, um, is there any research in terms of just the general well-being of using the menstrual cup against other forms?
1: I mean, you know, every woman's different, Mm -hmm. of course. But um, I, I started all this because of my personal experience. I found it to be more comfortable, more convenient, more reliable than anything I'd ever used before, even though I was really disgusted at the idea when it was first brought to my attention. And for the projects we've done, we've worked with 5,000 women and girls in Kenya and Malawi. The feedback we get from them is that 85% Or more of them, it does depend on the project, Um, don't want to go back to using a cloth or a pad, or most of them don't use tampons actually in those parts of the world because they found so much more kind of um, freedom and dignity and comfort with this as an alternative option. So a lot of people say, if they're that great, Mandu, why has nobody ever heard of them? But it's simple. I mean, you know hashtag because capitalism. They're a terrible business idea. I sell you a menstrual cup decade, uh, Derek. I've lost you as a customer for a decade. That's all it is. So our work is about kind of shifting the norms and creating demand for this product um, and then allowing women to make an informed choice. That's it. I'm not imposing cups on anyone. If you like it, you should have the option of using it. If you don't, you know, crack on with your pad or your cloth or your tampon and, and, and we're all good.
0: <laughs> I, I wonder about what's the day in the life of Mandu Reed like? You know, you, you're the leader of the Women's Equality Party. You are um, running the cup effect. What's the day in the life like?
1: Um, at the moment, the Women's Equality Party work is taking up most of my bandwidth because it's such a turbulent time politically. And so I will t- wake up in the morning and it's terrible. I straight away reach for my phone and I need to know what's going on in the news. Um, and I like to get my news from, you know, your typical news outlets, but I also like to get my news from a range. So that will be, I'm, I'll am i admit this, hope it doesn't get me into trouble. I'll get my news from the BBC, why not? But I'll also check out Breitbart. I want to know what... Uh, Um, folks who definitely don't share my worldview think. And I like to see how they're framing a story um, that is being presented by a more neutral outlet. So I always do that. And then um, our HQ at the moment is in Brixton. I live in Lewisham. So I get a bus, one bus takes me to work and I will do a lot of social media on the bus in the morning. And then when I get to the office, normally uh, we'll know pretty early on in the day whether um, there's a call for any of us, and it's often me, because I'm the chief spokesperson, to do any press. At the moment, because our campaigns gained so much traction and really captured the imagination of men and women and people who are angry about abuse of power, we're getting a lot more calls than we'd normally get for um, us to comment, for us to feed in. And then a lot of it's campaign strategy. Right. What's our next move going to be? I've been on the phone in the last few weeks to Joe Swinson, to Sean Berry, who's leader of the Greens. It's a little bit more difficult, I'll be honest, to engage with um, Labour Party politicians. They're a little bit more tribal and protective of their kind of, um, you know, landscape. Um, But It may be that I'm talking to them to try and uh, win them over, which is always a slow, painful process, to to something we'd like them to um, support and and pick up. Um, And then there's our members. Uh, A lot of my job is to um, keep our members mobilized, keep them you know, help them keep the faith in what we're trying to do, uh, keep their morale up. And, and I do I do lots of work with um, members, obviously in London more because that's where I'm based. But I, I, I've I just come back from Manchester at the weekend. There's a rally there. It's a real blend of things. Cup Effects normally gets um, dealt with. It's quite self-contained, but weekends and evenings are when I find time to pick that stuff up it's hard <laughs> Well, I, I, I haven't
0: heard anything about where you find time for yourself but um, <laughs> Mandu thank you um, for coming in and doing this pod where can people find out more about the Women's Equality Party the Cup Effect and indeed yourself
1: I'm on Twitter so at Mandu Reid that's Mandu is M-A-N-D-U Reed is R-E-I-D you can find me there and I, I'm on Twitter a lot because it's one of the ways I can connect with people that are interested the Women's Equality Party we've got a website uh, women's equality um, and we also have social media accounts that are really active you can join the party that's easy to do it's less than five pounds a month you can just become a supporter um, and I think I think mainly you'll see what happens when the general election kicks off and and, and runs its course but mainly we're, we're we're campaigning year in year out on on issues that are going to get us to the destination of men and women being equal. And I believe everyone has a stake in that. So I can't think of a single person that doesn't have something to gain by at least taking an interest in what we're doing. So, you know, come and say hi.
0: Brilliant. Mandu, thank you for coming in. Um and thank you for listening to Just Cause of Derek A. Bardwell. If you like this pod, please give us a five star rating and subscribe. It all really helps. You can reach me on Twitter at derek a bard. that's d e r e k a b a r d. And I will see you soon. Thank you.